And welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, our podcast that corresponds to the chronological reading plan that Calvary is going through this year. Each week, we read through the passages for the next week and answer questions you have from previous week's readings and talk a little bit about what you're going to be reading coming up. So the first question, Pastor Clayton, comes from Numbers chapter 35, uh, specifically verse 28. Mm -hmm. And so it's talking about the cities of refuge and how the manslayer or the the unintentional murderer uh, can flee to these different cities. But they have to stay there, basically, in kind of an exile. Uh, It says, until the death of the high priest. And so the question then is, why is it the death of the high priest rather than something that's more regular or predictable like the year of Jubilee? The death of the high priest is seen as an atonement, um, the atoning death that will allow for the, the, the guilt to be dealt with. And so it's not a, you know, waiting for the year of Jubilee, which would be like a debt being released. It is an atonement for the, the blood guilt when the high priest dies. I think that's what's going on there. That's never explicitly stated. Um, there are other ideas that it is just an alternative way of, of keeping time, right? Because it will be uh, like the death of a high priest marks a significant turnover in the, the people's history. But I think given, given the book of Numbers, given where it's at, like given the Pentateuch as a whole, I think that the high priest's death is about atonement, and I think that's why. That makes sense from just thinking through like what is being described by the cities of refuge and how the the family of whoever died, the victim, they can, or they they are expected to that there will be a a uh, avenger, you mm-hmm. know, an avenger of blood, you know. So rather than the person dying for their crime, because the avenger of the blood finds them, the high priest dies. And kind of covers over the uh, the blood, exactly. <laughs> the blood shedding that is supposed to happen. You know, that's interesting. Well, then our second uh, question comes from Deuteronomy six, and it says Abraham believed God and was considered righteous. And the New Testament says, by faith we become righteous. In Deuteronomy six verse twenty four, it says we are righteous by obeying all God's commands, which implies we can do something to become righteous obeying, which is a huge no-no in modern theology. <laughs> so how do we take this? So perhaps we should turn to Deuteronomy 6.24. Yeah, so I'll read the passage. It <clears throat> says, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And then verse 25, And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. The, the issue being, can we earn righteousness through obedience? The answer to that is no. I think that there are some important pieces here. One of the mistakes we can make when we think about faith is we can think about faith as entirely a mental exercise. It's entirely a, a set of beliefs. Um, and if we have that perspective, we've missed the idea of faith. In the New Testament, as well as the Old, obedience is a necessary ingredient in faith, or maybe more specifically, the intention to obey is a necessary ingredient in faith. And so as the rabbis look at, as they read the Old Testament, um, and they they try to figure out what exactly was expected of a person to stay in the covenant, it wasn't perfect obedience because people are not perfect, right? But the intention to obey the Lord is the condition of remaining in the covenant. And so when he's talking about here, if we are careful to obey this law, all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. That word righteousness is the idea of not being guilty or cast out of the covenant. And so I think what is being said here is that if we live with the firm intention to obey, um, then that will be our righteousness. If we disobey, there is sacrifice to atone for those, those sins. So disobedience brings sin, which puts us into conflict with the covenant, with the law, with with Yahweh. And then we have sacrifices, which allow us to be moved back into uh, uh, good standing in the covenant. And that's very similar for a Christian today. We would say there's a real big problem if a person just does not intend to obey the Lord. Um, we, we talk about sin and temptation rising up, um, getting a hold of us. 
but living with a clear sin pattern and the clear intention to continue sinning is a problem. That's the kind of thing that in the New Testament gets one shunned. Excommunicated. Excommunicated, yeah. Well, and we've talked about over the last couple of years in our preaching in the New Testament, especially that the idea of faith has a lot to do with what we would uh, identify as allegiance. And allegiance certainly requires mental acceptance of certain truths. You know, what does it mean when we say I pledge allegiance? You know, it's meaning not only do I agree that this thing is sort of my my master, my country or whatever else, but I'm saying I will do what I can to protect it, preserve it, uh, seek its welfare, whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. With God, obviously, we're not protecting him or, or whatever else, but I think that we're we're saying, we're putting our whole selves forward to say, you know, in my thinking and my affections and my actions, I'm going to, to live in such a way as to, to reflect these truths, because otherwise it's meaningless. If we lean too hard on the intellectualization of faith, meaning that it's about beliefs and having the right beliefs, primarily, and not about faithfulness, not about obedience, not about allegiance, then I think what we end up having is this need to believe exactly as I believe, or else you don't have the same faith I do. Right. And so we see denominations that are that are different than one another on sometimes relatively small issues. Right. And historically, the church has, has struggled with people believing that the people going to the church down the road are going to heaven. Um, now, that's not been the case really in America since World War II. That kind of prejudice has, has declined sharply. But that, I think, is a result of this idea that faith is just a mental thing. If we, if we think that it's just about saying the right words and thinking the right things, we end up really excluding, I think, anyone that doesn't think exactly as we do. Also, I think it's an interesting case to ask the question, you know, what, how many beliefs does a person need to have? Right. in order to be in the covenant. Does a person need to understand the Trinity? I hope not, because I don't, and I don't know anyone who does. Does a person need to be able to speak about the hypostatic union, you know, Jesus being both divine and human? I don't I don't think so. I think it's about loyalty. It's about commitment. It's about allegiance. Hmm. And there are beliefs that come with that, but it's not primarily about that. And I, yes, and I think it, as well, another another uh, dimension here and, and, you know, it's probably, well, even as I was saying it, maybe better to wait until we get to Romans and some of these other books. But even just thinking about whose, by whose faith, by whose allegiance yeah. are we saved? I think there's a strong argument to be made from Romans, especially that we are saved by Jesus's own faithfulness, Jesus's own allegiance. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to what you were saying is there's no expectation that, that us or any members of the covenant are going to follow these things perfectly. That's not to say that God is is at peace with the fact that we sin. No, he's not. But just that he's realistic. And then he makes an allowance for that. And so I would say even reading this, it's like, okay, and our obedience will be our righteousness and it will be a merit for us if we keep to do all this. Okay, so none of them kept it. So it's a merit for no one. Until Jesus, who did perfectly keep the law and therefore won that that righteousness or won that merit for all of the covenant people because he is the one sure. truly and completely obedient Israelite. And I'm not negating anything you just said, but just, again, I think just another layer, you know, reading this as sure. well. It's like I get I kind of get where the question asker is going, you know, and mm-hmm. wanting to, to, absolutely, you know, think about these things and. But I think that if we, if you read Deuteronomy 6 and you sit back and go, okay, good, so it is up to me, and I'm a good person, so I'm fine. <laughs> right. You, <laughs> you know, instead, you should sit back and go, oh, man, well, I can't do that. And I think that the Bible's like, yes, that's right, which is why Jesus came and did it on your behalf, and we killed him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably not something we should laugh about. <laughs> So he he won our righteousness through yes. his obedience, and he also won our righteousness through his his uh, purifying, righteousifying death. This next week's readings are a bit of a grab bag. So we're finishing up Deuteronomy. We'll be reading 26 through the end of the book. 
a brief swing into the book of Psalms to read Psalm 90, uh, which is written by Moses, or at least uh, attributed to Moses, and then the first and almost halfway through the book of Joshua. So we have uh, quite quite a lot of ground to cover with the readings next week. Well, Deuteronomy, as we talked last week, is the hidden gem of the Old Testament and uh, presented as Moses's final series of sermons or exhortations to the people of Israel while they stand on the shore of the Jordan River, getting ready to begin the conquest of the Promised Land. And it's called Deuteronomy because... Deuteronomy means like second law or a re-giving of the law. And we find a lot of laws in Deuteronomy, some which are brand new that don't appear before in the Torah, and others that are expansions or additions uh, or, or explanations of laws that were found in other parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And our readings next week start in chapter 26, which is kind of the turn... Uh, back towards what I would call, I think, one of the major themes of Deuteronomy, which is like remembering. What does biblical remembering mean? And Deuteronomy, in some sense, is like the the manual for like biblical time travel. <laughs> <laughs> because I think, and of course, the ancient Hebrew conception of time is never just spelled out because it's one of those kind of background worldview things that that everybody knew, and so why would you ever explain it outright? But I think that we see throughout Deuteronomy this idea that, I mean, history is linear, meaning there's a past and a future, and we're currently in the present, we're moving towards the future, and you can't go back to the past. However, in these these times of remembrance, of significance, there's a way in which the past and the future become present in the present in a real way you know so we see this in the celebration of the festivals uh and then here at the end of deuteronomy moses in chapter 26 lays out sort of a tithing and an offering ritual where the israelite comes and kind of it's really almost like a creedal statement in in uh chapter 26 i mean it's not quite what the new testament era creeds were doing in terms of protecting against heresy or kind of providing a rallying point for the church but it was more just an expression of who Israel is uh, as a way of remembering and not just remembering in terms of just basic reminding ourselves of the truth, but actually inhabiting the story, inhabiting the the role of the Israelites before God. That's really what we see throughout most of the rest of the chapters is it just is Moses gives different ways of embodying that memory. And so he tells them to build basically a, what we would call a memorial out of stones. Moses writes a, a song that takes up most of chapter 32 that, that Israel is supposed to memorize and teach the children and and sing to itself, you know, into the future, which, I mean, they did. There it is. It's preserved in Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. And then we also see in these last chapters, I think the other major theme of Deuteronomy, which is which is tied together with the memory piece, and that is, like, what does it mean to walk forward in faith, remembering what Yahweh has done for us, trusting him with what he's going to do, and choosing what, what Deuteronomy refers to as the path of life, right? So Deuteronomy 30 is, I think, one of the more famous times that this comes up that Moses says, look, I'm setting before you life and death, you know, choose life so that you may live, obviously that you may prosper in the land that, that Yahweh is bringing to you. And Deuteronomy 28 and 29 really outline the, the horror <laughs> of what the path of death leads to. And we can talk more about this if, if it's something you want to talk about Clayton, but I just remember one of the first times I ever read Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and just the feeling of real peril that came over me, you know, just like, oh my gosh, like, this is bad. This is really bad. And yeah, I, I saw that. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there. We could talk more about it in a minute if you want to. But just that that's the expression of the way of death, you know, and then Moses goes on to say, look, but that's not, it doesn't have to go that way. Like, choose life, choose the way of life. Uh, choose the path of righteousness uh, before Yahweh's face. And so then the very end of Deuteronomy just deals with the turnover uh, between Moses and Joshua, the Moses, or excuse me, that Joshua selected as the next leader and just kind of the, his investment, if that makes sense, 
his inauguration as sort of the the replacement Moses. Um, And uh, then Moses, of course, passes away there at the end of Deuteronomy after getting a glimpse of the promised land, or maybe even more than a glimpse, depending on how you read the text. I wonder if he wasn't, I mean, he was able to kind of see a large swath of it just from the mountain he was on, but it almost reads like he's sort of granted a vision kind of from head to toe of the entire uh, footprint of, of what the people were going to wind up inheriting. So my first question about the end of Deuteronomy comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, and it reads this way. When Elyon gave estates to nations, when he split up the sons of man, he set out the boundaries of people by the number of the sundry gods. The NIV reads, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Uh, These are very different texts. And so I'd just love it if you spoke to that a little bit. What's going on? And who are the sundry gods? The NIV Old Testament translation is based on a Hebrew version of the Old Testament called the Masoretic Text which was produced uh, quite late in like the Middle Ages. It's a reliable translation. I mean, it, it was based on translations and based on translations. And and for the most part, why we know it's a reliable translation is that in, 19, in the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we found a many ancient, ancient copies of, of Old Testament books, and they were able to compare them. And the Masoretic text was, for the most part, it, it matched up with it. This is one of the few places where it doesn't. <clears throat> and so I think that the the old, old Hebrew versions of Deuteronomy uh, have the reading that you gave at first, uh, that he set the boundaries of the peoples by the number of the sundry gods. And then the, the later Hebrew, the Masoretic text that the NIV is based on, that has been adjusted to according to the number of the sons of Israel. So that's the the difference there. And so I think that we, generally speaking, the people who study translation translations and translation issues, the the rule of thumb is that the older phrasing is generally understood to be the more accurate. Uh, accurate may not be quite the right word, but. Which makes sense, right? These these things were ancient texts. If Moses wrote most of Deuteronomy, that means that it was written, you know... A long time ago. Right, 1,500 years before even the copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls were made, which are now 2,000 years old, you know, I mean, and so it's very, very ancient. And so it just makes sense that whatever is closest in time to the original point is probably going to reflect the truer reading. And so that's what's happening why there's the difference Mm -hmm. um and again one of the very few places like i don't i don't you know we're never wanting to undermine our confidence in our translations i mean teams of very intelligent people have labored for all of their lives to to produce and continue to adjust the niv and the esv and, and the kjv and all our different english translations so we can we can i think rest confidently in that Uh, And this is not, you know, Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 is not a load-bearing verse that if it turns out we're wrong about it, that means that, you know, Jesus isn't really God or something (laughs) like that. So it seems like, and and we've talked about this a few times before, but it seems like in the original reading that, that Moses is reflecting this understanding that every nation has its sort of patron deity, and we've talked about this before. And then this then is an acknowledgement that it's not that each people group has picked or came up with its own God, but that Yahweh in the actual kind of sorting out of peoples, presumably at the Tower of Babel or kind of back in that point in human history, gave over each of the language groups or each of the, the kinship groups to a a archangel or to some kind of a guardian spirit. Was it in judgment? Was it, you know, we don't know anything about that, but just so that's this idea that there are a number of these lesser gods, gods with a lowercase g, and that when Yahweh separated the peoples, these lesser gods basically, you know, uh, got or, or received somehow one of the nations, one of the language groups. Looking at the Pentateuch as a whole, 
we have these five books, and they are at the beginning of the Bible. And while Genesis tends to be pretty inviting to people, um, and the beginning of Exodus does as well, somewhere around the middle or tail end of Exodus, we tend to start to get into ground that's less familiar, feels less welcoming. Uh-huh. And a lot of the time we are we become much less familiar with. And so the end of Exodus, then Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are just books that are much less known, I think, to the average evangelical Christian who may be a lifelong Bible reader and yet finds these books in particular foreign and difficult and confusing. And we know there's a lot of laws here. And we also know that, that we don't follow all those laws. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious as if you would speak to what benefit is there in us reading the Torah? And how should we allow the, the, these first five books, the Pentateuch, to speak to our lives? Like what, what does a Christian do in these books or with these books? Well, I think there's much benefit in every way. <clears throat> and so just from my own my own uh, development early on in my in my actual following of Jesus you know there was a, a conversation that occurred with a family member that kind of moved me to say you know I really need to read the whole Bible I need to have read the whole thing um, to, to some extent because I knew that most people didn't not like and I'll be one of the special <laughs> ones but just that Oh, there was probably a little bit of that, <laughs> but more just as well of like, what, what are we really talking about? Like, if we haven't read the whole thing, can you, can you speak about it usefully if you don't know, you know, and that was a question that I'd had too, of like when, when leaders at campus ministries would be like, oh yeah, I've never read such and such a thing or something else. It's like, well, how, what if it says something important in there? <laughs> <laughs> and it does. <laughs> Out of that, I think grew my conviction, my personal conviction. And I think this comes through in my in my preaching and in my teaching that the whole word of God is for the whole people of God. Certainly, parts of it are easier to understand. Parts of it are seemingly more directly applicable to our lives, and that's fine, you know. And and yeah, no, and not everybody's going to be fascinated by it in the same way that, that you and I are. And that's fine too. Like, I don't think we all have to have the same affection for the Bible, but I think that realizing that it's, it's a whole thing that they preserve the whole thing for us means that we can't just not know what the forsaken parts say, mm-hmm. you know, because it really will add to our understanding of the parts that are quote unquote easier to understand and what we actually find out is a lot of the assumptions we make about the easier to understand parts are wrong. And in saying that, I'm not like, eh, but I'm right. No, I, yeah, that's not what I'm trying to say. Just that there's the Old Testament. It's like watching the last Star Wars movie and then drawing conclusions about the whole thing from that movie. <laughs> now, to some extent, you could sure, that, sure, you can do that. But to a great extent, you will not understand fully what's happening. And you will not understand the context of characters' actions. You won't understand, you know, when somebody goes, I've got a bad feeling about this. You'll be like, okay, yeah, they have a bad feeling about that. You won't realize that's a line that's been said in every Star Wars. You know, you'll just, Mm -hmm. all this context, you know, you you won't see. And so, okay, we open up the New Testament and we ignore the first three quarters of the book in our hands, you know. And then it's like, well, of course you're going to miss things. So I'd say all of that. And I'd say particularly with the law, you know, I, I read Psalm 119 and the way that the psalmists talked about the Torah was entirely different than how I felt about it, entirely different than what you were describing, you know, which I think you're right, that most most Christians of our tribe feel about it. You know, that your law is a delight, your law is a lamp to my feet, mm-hmm. that your law, you know, that all the, I run in the paths of your commandments. It's like, all right. So that means that I'm missing something because uh-huh. <laughs> they're looking at the Torah. And I think we read that sometimes and we take it to mean the whole thing in general. And then our minds drift to like the Psalms and the stories about David and the promises in Isaiah, which are good. And I, and I don't think they're not included in what the psalmist is saying, but the Torah definitely is, because that's the word he's using. <laughs> right. He's using the word Torah. 
And so that, I think, kind of started me on the journey of like, okay, how do I get to where the psalmist is about the law? You know, and so I, th- I think that would be my encouragement for everybody else as well. You know, because I, I think there's different pathways to that. It can be good to learn the original context of some of the laws. I don't think that's even necessarily necessary uh, because, again, our lives are not like their lives and they're sure. never going to be. And so it's like, I will never, well, I shouldn't say this, but I will probably never rescue my neighbor's donkey out of a <laughs> hole that I dug. Like, that's just not going to happen. Right. That specific instance is just not going to happen. I will never build a parapet around my roof <clears throat> or have Pastor Clayton come over to tell me whether or not I need to rip my house down because I found some mold under the kitchen sink. <laughs> like, those things are just never going to happen. And so there, and we've said this throughout these weeks that we've been in the Torah, we're not looking for one-to-one uh, lessons. We're not taking medical advice or diet advice or whatever advice from the law we shouldn't take parenting advice directly in a one-to-one thing don't bring us your rebellious son and tell us it's time to kill him because we're not gonna we're not gonna do it (laughs) or if your sister says why don't we become muslim that's not we're not gonna kill her because she tried to (laughs) entice you away from christianity and so i think that 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 can just pose a problem for us though because we're so so many of us are consumed with, okay, I'm reading the Bible because it's supposed to tell me what to do. And I think that on one level, you know, that's commendable. Back to the whole allegiance conversation. We want to do what's right. We want to live our faith in every aspect of our being. Good. Like that's a good impulse. And I think the Holy Spirit will honor that. But I worry sometimes that that also what's under there is a really what we would call a monstrous view of God of like I have to know what the right thing to do is because if I put a toe out of line he's gonna get me right and you read all these stories about him getting the you know and so it's sort of like a feedback loop sort of a thing and I think as much as we're able to just shed that in Jesus name because some of these a lot of these Bible passages will have nothing to tell you to do it's not about directly giving you something to do today it's about transforming your heart and your mind and your spirit you read these laws in deuteronomy about you know wanting to be kind to animals and not be cruel to them and or being kind to widows or whatever else and certainly there's real actionable steps we could take but it's that's more about forming us into being the sort of person who will embody what will embody the righteousness that that law is pointing at without actually following the individual laws. And I think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans and the book of Hebrews. You know, that that transformation that Jeremiah promised that the Torah would be written in our hearts, that's what it's talking about, is that the Holy Spirit is using God's word, certainly to teach us the right things to do. Like, I'm not denying that. But that that is an outflow. That is downstream from the actual transformation you know kind of purification of the headwaters so that everything that flows out of that is being transformed towards good obviously we're not uh, you know we i have not yet attained you know none of us have yet attained the goal but that doesn't stop us from striving after it here's a question i would put kind of related to that for you is like okay so just pastorally pastoral kind of brass tacks i i commend those of us of in our church who have stuck with the reading plan, you know, this first section is, I think, the hardest in terms of actual, yeah. like, the reading experience. This is the most difficult and it gets easier from here just because then it's stories and, you know, and just things that are just easier to read. Do any of our people need to ever come back and read numbers again? <laughs> yes. Why? Well, need is a tough a tough word. And that's right? why I used it. So um, it depends on what, what you want. Right? Do you want to be transformed into the image of God in the 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 best way that you can be? Um, what we find in Numbers, for example, is the wilderness wanderings and God's people wandering through the wilderness and doing a bad job of it. We find a a, a people that we can relate to because they 
mess up despite generous provision from Yahweh over and over and over again. And if the Bible is meant to be read transformationally, which you and I both think that it is, then what these stories do is they seep into us and they allow us to see ourselves in the people of Israel and repent and be formed to, in the next time that we come up against something we want to really complain about, realize I I don't want to make the same mistake and I want to be grateful for what the Lord has given and be changed by that. There's, can you get that experience without reading numbers? Of course. But Yahweh put it there for a reason. Like he, it'd be so weird to say, well, you know what? I know Yahweh is Yahweh, but I mean, I know a little better than he does what's going to be good for me. So uh-huh. I'm going to read these books that make me feel good and not these other books that are a little tougher or don't make me feel good. It's possible, first of all, of course. Or, God forbid, make me feel stupid because I don't understand what's happening. Right. Um, It's very possible that Yahweh's goal is not for you to feel smart and good, Uh um, but to be changed. And so, need. Can you go your entire life without reading the book of Numbers and go to heaven? I mean, yes. But, and, well... Well, I, I take this so way, I mean ways, it. That's just the wrong question. It's the wrong question. <laughs> and it's such a, I, heaven is, is a big deal. And I'm not saying otherwise, but, but to just look for what do I need to do in order to be sure I'm going to heaven is, is a small question. Mm. Yahweh is on a redemption mission of you and everyone and everything you experience and encounter. And he wants to change you. And he's given us this book. That if we just will go in it and sit in it and become accustomed to it and let it speak to us, we will find ourselves changed by that experience. That as we get into it, I mean, really get into the word of God and become accustomed and familiar to it, um, we're going to find it changes us. And we're not going to continue having a hard time reading Leviticus. I'm not saying if you read it 10 times, your 11th time will be full of delight and joy and ease. But I think you will find tremendous benefit. So do you need to read numbers? No. Should you read numbers? Please. Yes. Find out what Yahweh put there for you. And if you don't find it on your first read through, because you won't, um, keep going back until you, you find as much of it as you can. And as I said at the beginning, this week's readings, we also finally leave the Torah behind Uh, and start in on the historical books, the first of which is the book of Joshua, which uh, is well known, uh, both positively and negatively, as the uh, story of the Israelite conquest of the Promised Land. And next week we'll be reading up through the first couple of verses of chapter 12, uh, which really is half the book, and helpfully, this kind of splits right in the middle of the sort of internal divisions of Joshua that you can you can have the book, the first half being sort of the the story of the conquest itself, and then the second half being of course the story of the portioning or the story of the allotment um, of the different tribes taking uh, their their territorial zones within the promised land. But we'll talk more about that on the next episode. So in these first 12 chapters, we get really what Joshua is most famous for. And so Joshua and the Israelites, Moses dies, they leave, they cross the Jordan, they get ready uh, for the conquest, and uh, they spy out the land, and we get a little bit of insight into what's kind of going on in the Canaanite cities that they've all heard what's happening and are terrified uh and then they kind of renew the covenant moses or moses joshua sets up the memorial that moses had commanded the people speak the blessings and the curses over each other and then it begins the war begins with the city of jericho and kind of the miraculous deliverance and and knocking down of the walls and we get uh, various stories of israel's victories but also its setbacks Uh, So we find that this idea of the ban uh, or the harem, which would be giving over everything in a particular community to destruction, uh, can also apply to God's people. And so we have the story of Achan in chapter 7, who takes some things that were banned, that were prescribed, and then that the ban then applies to him and his family. And so uh, that happens and and they uh, have to purify the community to move on. 
and then chapter 12, which most of will read next week, but is sort of a summary of here's all the, the land that was taken, here's the list of kings that were defeated, and then I, I believe it ends by saying that then the land had peace uh, from the conflict. And so Joshua 1 through 12 is really a succinct telling of this war of, of conquest or this war of purification that the Israelite people engaged in. Something that had never stood out to me before, I mean, I it, it's not unfamiliar, but it had never really struck me, is in Joshua chapter 5, mm-hmm. um, we read in verse, uh, starting in uh, verse 6, the Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their, their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. Yes. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Why weren't they circumcised in the wilderness? Like what what reason is there yeah, to then do it all that. at once? <laughs> I noticed that too, and I don't. I don't have a. I don't know, except to say that. Well, I think they did it all at once because they needed to be circumcised. Well, right. <laughs> so I think that it. I think it might be just as simple as that. The command that babies be circumcised on the eighth day was only just given, and so it just was not a thing yet in their True. culture for them to be circumcised as as infants. You know, Gershom, Moses' son, was not circumcised in the Exodus 4 story. And, and look so, how things went that way. Well, it didn't go great. <laughs> and so it just seems like that just was not, it was just not a cultural expectation. Back in Genesis 34, which is not a great chapter, but when the, the Shechemites try and enter into the covenant family, what happens? They all get circumcised. It is part of the renewal of the covenant that, that Joshua is leading. Um, that maybe it was thought that, okay, well, Abraham and his people were circumcised because they were entering the covenant, and then that kind of covers the rest of us, but now that's that's changing into being, no, every individual male Israelite has to bear the mark of the covenant. So something, this isn't really a question, but just uh, another thing that I noticed, again, this, this really stood out to me this time reading through, um, is Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. We read, the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. So they've, yeah. they've come into the land of Canaan. Um, and there was no longer any manna pro- uh, for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. This is, I mean, this feels like promise fulfillment. Mm-hmm. The An original reader would be reading this with the three promises to Abraham in mind. And we've seen throughout Exodus, through Numbers and Deuteronomy, the promise for the people has already been fulfilled. They're, they are a vast right. people. Yes. But here, the promise of the land is happening. It is being. It is sustaining them. Mm-hmm. Yahweh is no longer sustaining them supernaturally, we could say. Um, they are being sustained by the land itself. And that's that's amazing. I mean, it's an exciting verse. It's such an easy one to read over, but it's an exciting mm-hmm. verse. Can you tell me what's going on in verse 13? Who is this man mm-hmm. who comes up with yeah. a drawn sword and speaks to Joshua? I think that the last time we saw some mysterious stranger standing with a sword drawn was with Balaam and his donkey. Uh, and so I think that that indicates to us that this is an angelic being, if not the angel of the Lord himself. I think there's a couple things happening here. First, it is a it is a replay of Moses finding the burning bush and being addressed by the Lord. Uh, that I mean, a lot of the same words that Joshua looked up like Moses did and saw something, and then when he approached it, he was told to take his shoes off, take off your sandals, for the place on which you stand is holy. We don't get any more conversation after that. It's just, and so Joshua did it. And then it moves on, you know, with the story of Jericho. And it's like, man, what did they, did he have anything to tell him? Like, you know, I think that it's, it's a signal that, that the kind of the theological point, one of the theological points that Joshua, the book is making throughout is that nothing that Israel accomplishes, do they do by the strength of their own arm, you know, by the strength of their own flesh. Back to our one our question conversation. If there's any question whether the Bible 
is ambivalent about whether we can save ourselves. You know, that Joshua is saying, no, you cannot. <laughs> action is involved. Faithfulness, ac- faithful action is involved, but it is the Lord's army coming and getting ready to march with the Israelites. That's the, the surety of their success. And I think there's, it's also very telling in uh, the end of verse 13, Joshua went towards him and said to him, are you ours or our foes? And he said, no, for I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now have I come. And I, in other translations, it says, Joshua asks him that question and the angel says, neither, you know, rather than just this, no. But I think it is, it is a, I think we should take note of that as just a statement that whatever's happening with the wars that are about to occur it is not that Israel's given just blanket permission to treat the nations however it wants, that this is the style of warfare that's always supposed to be used, that God always, this is how he always wants his people to act, you know, in war. Like all of that is not the case because it's, we, that the people of God should never presume that God is going to fight for them, that every conflict we happen to have is a good one because it's us doing the fighting. I think that is a very salient thought for us as modern Americans to sit and think about, you know, and just our history of, of kind of baptized warfare. Uh, and that a lot of the colonists self-consciously modeled their early treatment of Native Americans on the book of Joshua. Like they, they said, well, I mean, the famous phrase, I don't remember which which uh, colonist it was that said this, but like, we have sufficient light from the scriptures to proceed with an extermination of the Indians. You know, it's just like, whoa, that is just not, it's just totally opposite of what Joshua is saying. Uh, there are so many limits placed on this, this ban warfare, this harem warfare, that it, it honestly, it baffles me. Because I think that the colonists and think like I think they legitimately thought that that's what the Bible was telling them, and I say this in humility. I know that you know, I, but I just look back on that and it, it does baffle me how anyone could have ever walked away from Joshua with that as a conclusion. That oh okay, so we're allowed to treat our military enemies in this way because once upon a time, God had God sided. Well, God didn't side with Joshua. That's the point of what the angel says. You know, it's like, you're on our side for now, but you may not always be. So why do they conquer Jericho by marching around it? Mm. Like, why that kind of odd set of instructions? I mean, it's a seven. So it's one of the notable uh, instances of the sacred number seven. I shouldn't Mm -hmm. say sacred number, but, you know, special number. And so I think that there is something to be said for, and I, w- I w- want to look more into this, but like some kind of creational aspect or it, it, it is, it's trying to link us back to Genesis yeah. and maybe in two specific ways. One with the idea that it happens on the seventh day, mm-hmm. the Sabbath day, and that the Israelites don't do anything Really, they just blow the horns and shout, and this knocks the wall down. Of course, then they proceed to conquer the city. But I'm just saying in terms of knocking the wall down, they they do things that do not demolish anything, you know, shouting mm-hmm. and, and blowing the ram's horns. And so I think that there's, there's something to be said for just the Sabbath connection. And we see the idea of rest throughout Joshua, again, with the idea that none of this is happening by their own power. And I think we we mentioned this, I think, last week, too, that there's a lot of flood symbolism, I think, happening in Joshua. And so I wonder if that's part of that, too, that it is it's another kind of line being thrown back to Genesis to kind of remind us of like, okay, like the Israelites are behaving like the flood, like Mm -hmm. they are the waters of the flood coming in to to uh, execute the creator's judgment. Skipping ahead a little bit, the the next question I have comes from chapter 10. So there are a couple of miracles, I think really powerful miracles in the book of Joshua. And we're not going to, we're not going to talk on all of them, but in verse 13, well, 12 and 13, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, sun stand still over Gibeon and you moon over the valley of 
Ijalon, or Ihalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. How does the sun and the moon stand still in the sky? What does that mean? Because an ancient reader wouldn't have thought about like the rotation of the earth no, or any of that. But, but we can't help but think about those things when we read a passage like this. So what is happening? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> <coughs> a miracle? Like, I, I don't know. What you, you want me to trot out my Answers Genesis astronomy graphs? <laughs> so a couple of theories here um, that I think are interesting. If you, like me, read this and go, you know, Yahweh can do anything he wants to, but this, this seems like uh, just a weird place. There's, in the... At this time, astrology was a big, big thing for people in this region of the world. And what is likely being talked about here is a day when the sun and moon are in the sky at the same time is seen as a bad omen. And so one, one thought is that what Joshua is asking for here is that the, the, a bad omen of some kind would be given. Or that he's asking for an eclipse. So they stand still, not and shine, but stand still in the sense that it goes dark, um, which would have also been seen as a terrifying omen and made the, the, the march and the proceeding of the people of Yahweh to be easier. Miracles are, I think, an interesting thing to think about because there are, it seems like there's sort of two sorts of them. Like there are miracles that are just straight up, the creator bends the rules <laughs> in a sure. way that... We can't account for, you right. know, scientifically yet or perhaps never. But then there are other things where it's not so much that anything, quote unquote, supernatural happens, but it's just that it happens at right, right at exactly the right, time. the right time. And so this could be one of those where and, and it could be read either way. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, either way, it's still a miracle, you know, that's like perhaps and of course, again, as, as modern people, I think it's a very, very difficult <laughs> to conceive of the earth halting in its, <laughs> because the number of miracles like increases exponentially. <laughs> like if you've ever been in a car and then they hit the brakes, what does everybody in the car do? <laughs> you keep flying. Yeah. Like, if this planet's spinning at 9,000 miles an hour just stops Stop. suddenly, everything on it. <laughs> and everything else spinning and moving in the sky has right, to stop right. as well. The hurricanes, the gigantic tidal waves, the... I mean, everything would have died. The entire planet would have been destroyed. <laughs> and, of course, they you know they didn't have that conception of, of how all this worked back sure. then. And perhaps that's what happened. I'm not denying it. It's just like, man, that's... That's like the mightiest act of God ever. <laughs> all so that they could have some light to climb up a valley. Know, right? <laughs> and so you think, all right, maybe it was more of a miracle of timing that this eclipse or this omen appeared, you know, right when they needed it to, mm-hmm. to kind of signal the doom of, of their opponents. And that is definitely a little easier to sit with than... than yeah the planets planetary bodies actually stopping <laughs> and so here's the conflict inside me is interesting because on one hand i mean we believe that in him we live and move and have our being yahweh holds the universe oh, together sure. moment Absolutely. by moment and so when we read the miracles of parting the red sea you know if, if yahweh is like holding all the water molecules together just moving a few of them somewhere is not actually the the miracle that's shocking is him holding the universe together moment by moment. Right, and if right. he's doing... And so, on one hand, I'm there, right? And so, he if he if he decides to just stop everything... He can. He can, yeah. right? Absolutely. And it doesn't cost him more... No. ...than just splitting the Red Sea. I've heard the phrase, less than a thought, mm-hmm. is far, if we want to talk about effort. You yeah. know, the effort it takes Yahweh to do this. It's less right. than a thought. But on the other hand... I, I think about the universe as a whole, and the excess of right. that seems <laughs> wild <laughs> to me. And I just don't know. I'm, I'm, I, 
I love verses like this because they make me stop in my tracks. Two parts of me rise up and conflict with one another. Yeah. And well, and yeah. and you kind of referenced at the beginning. I think we should at least appreciate that they had, as far as we can tell, they had a much different way of thinking about mm-hmm. the world than we do. And so they did not conceive of the moon and the sun as being other orbs, like bodies that existed somewhere off in space. That was just not their conception. And Genesis tells us that the purpose of the celestial bodies is to be to serve as signs. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to actually read this as an omen or an eclipse or or something of that, you know, to where because they would never I mean, they obviously knew that they moved across the sky, but their purpose mm-hmm. was to be to serve as signs, you know. And so I think that this is something about their purpose, not necessarily their motion. I don't know if that makes if that sure. if that difference makes sense. Not I, and I'm not trying to say so. They didn't actually stop. I mean, I, I don't. And that Joshua quotes the book of Joshua quotes a poem at this point, mm-hmm. which I think is also yeah. We should uh, at least give us pause that poetic, like uh, Deborah and Barak in the book of Judges will sing a song about their victory that talks about the stars and planets fighting on their behalf. None of us for a second think that the stars and planets came down and fought on behalf of Deborah and Barak because it's couched in a poem the same way that this is here. The poetic nature of that should also probably at least be accounted for, you know, that this is a poetic reading of something that happens, certainly, uh, but it's poetry nonetheless. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. It's not even a... You know, like there's no mucus moving. I don't know how to. Well, it's never... a, that's a dry cough rather than a wet one. COVID was presented with dry coughs. <laughs> <at the beginning>, so <laughs> it's probably just allergies.